Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Thais. Thais Gibson is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is extremely passionate about personal growth, the subconscious mind, and connecting with others. With an MA and over 13 different certifications, ranging from cognitive behavioral therapy to hypnosis, Thais strives to continuously learn and grow. That's one. Let's take a pause. That's a lot. Where do you find the time to do that? (laughs) Well, I get to write them off and I've been running my practice and stuff for, for the better part of a decade now working with people. So like I do one or two a year and and I did a bunch before I got started. So like, you know, I I love learning and it's a nice thing to do. It adds up over time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thais is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships, which is what we're going to talk about today because I personally am going to be selfish and I want to hear about this. So (laughs) she overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel, which will be linked up in the show notes, often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their lives. Thais is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful and limiting programs in their own mind. She is focused on helping people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment abundance and personal freedom in their lives. I would like somebody to retrain my brain to overcome the uh, side effects of my medication, which gives me brain farts, which when I'm reading, I'm like, I'm an intelligent person. Please let that word come to my head. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing amazing. You couldn't even tell. (laughs) Great. I'm glad. (laughs) Sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, I know the word. I know the word. Why is it not coming to me? I am like a college educated woman. I know this word. And then like five minutes later, I'm like, there's the word. <laughs> I'm on, uh, most people listening know that I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and the mood stabilizer I'm on has very few side effects, but one of them is like, it affects memory, but it doesn't like completely wipe your memory. Just sometimes you have a hard time recalling things immediately. Yes. So yeah. like words and stuff. I'm like, I know the words, they are right here. <laughs> So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I would love for you to start us off by telling us what got you interested in attachment theory, Uh, because that is definitely a complex part of psychology. And uh, I personally love hearing how people got interested in these different uh, things, because I know my, my personal experience got me into psychology and usually everyone has some sort of experience that got them into it. Yeah. So for me, it was definitely that, um, I, so I was an athlete growing up. I I went to go play division one soccer in the United States. I'm born and raised in, in Toronto, Canada. And, um, 
And at 14 years old, after a bad knee surgery, um, I just got addicted to opiates. So I didn't even know like really what addiction was. I just like had a whole bunch of like, oh, this feels nice. This makes life easier sort of moments. And I found somebody in my school who would, who would sell them to me after, you know, my prescription ran out. And before I knew it, I was having like withdrawals when I couldn't get them. And I didn't even know what withdrawals were. So it was this huge, like frightening thing. And I'd always been this like really strong student, um, really good athlete, like all these things. And I was sort of like, what is this? Like, who am I? And so it kind of started me off in this really interesting path of like, really trying hard from the tools that I had and resources that I had at that age um, to try to like get sober and to try to get off of these things and to try to stop. And, and I would write in my journal at night, I'd be like, I'm going to avoid the girl in the hallway who sells <laughs> by going this way. I would try to like write out all these things like, you know, and like things I would come up with at that age, like 15 years old, 14, you know, through the next part of the better basically the, the better part of the next seven years I went through this. Um, and I would do everything I could and I would lose the battle to myself every day. And that was really hard for me. Um, and, and what I basically learned in retrospect is that basically the painkillers were a subconscious strategy to avoid pain because I was carrying a lot of pain because I went through a lot of attachment trauma in childhood. And so when I sort of had that in, in context and realized, okay, the problem isn't the problem. The painkillers aren't the problem. They're not jumping down my throat when I'm not looking. Right. It, it's a, a resource that I'm using to try to avoid pain. It's a subconscious strategy for something else. And I didn't actually learn that until much later later on when um, I had a friend of mine. So I was a pretty high functioning addict. I did go to school. I did play sports, um, didn't get drug tested by the NCAA, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, and I had a friend of mine in one of my classes once, and it was actually at a really hard time of my life where I was thinking about dropping out and just kind of quitting everything because I was having a very hard time just functioning as a whole. And I had done the rehab thing. I had done AA, NA, like I was trying to do stuff. It was not working you know, I was going in summer breaks in between, you know, and, and, um, he said to me in passing, he said, yeah, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. Mm. And it was this passing sentence. And it was like this earth shattering breakthrough moment for me, because it was like, you're describing the battle I fight with myself every day. You're describing my conscious mind going, this is the last time. This is the last day journaling at night. This is what I'm going to do to avoid. And my subconscious mind having totally different motives, which happened to have a lot to do with avoiding pain. And so that was a huge breakthrough moment. Um, that set me on a, a track to really actually healing. Um, and that was a lot of subconscious work. That was a lot of understanding how the subconscious mind works, how hypnosis works, self-hypnosis, all these different tools for subconscious reprogramming, diving into a lot of the attachment traumas that I had, healing at a deep subconscious level. Um, and that got me really sober. And then I think I kind of probably replaced that addiction with like, addicted to learning, right? <laughs> I was like down the rabbit hole and I like wanted to scream from the rooftops, like everybody, <laughs> we can heal, you know, because we, I saw so many people, I saw people in AA meetings who you get like a, a poker chip on day 100. And, and it's like, it's like, today was a struggle. You know, I remember seeing this girl, I think I was like 18 or 19 at the time. And I saw this girl and she's like, I'm sober a hundred days today, but it's been so hard. And I remember looking at her and going like, how am I going to fight a battle like this my whole life? Like, this isn't living. This is like, this is horrible. And so I just wanted to like tell everybody I knew, 
um, that there is a different way. And, um, and so anyway, so that sort of took me to opening a practice. I was very blessed. I had like a two year wait list in the first like three months of my practice wow. opening. Um, and then that sort of took me down. Um, okay. I can't just trade my time for money. I was seeing like 40 clients a week sometimes, um, you know, for like hour and a half sessions, like just working probably way too much. I had some boundary stuff to work out still as a human being at that point. And, um, and then it was like, well, how can I share tools and resources? And that's ultimately, um, what took me to, to creating the online school and realizing we can put that information out there and it's not, I don't have to be physically present all the time in order to help and serve. Yes. The internet is a beautiful thing. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> sure is. I said, um, so I have a teenager, she's 17. And I was like, your generation is like, the most connected generation. Like, you know, so much because the internet is at your fingertips. Like you can learn anything. And really when it comes to college, the only reason that we go to college anymore is to have a piece of paper that said, I actually learned these things, (laughs) you know, proof that we learned them because these kids can go on and, and there's all sorts of free classes they can take and all sorts of kind of things they can learn. And I just admire them because when I was their age, we did not. Like the internet was barely a thing when I was their age. It's true. It's true. So, um, wow, that's an amazing story. I um, I can't say personally battled addiction, but uh, I definitely have towed the line with alcohol um, up until I probably my mental health, well, not my right mental health diagnosis, probably up until I started seeing a therapist. Uh, which was in 2003. So it's been a little, or not 2003, 2013. I always get them mixed up. <laughs> 2013. <laughs> so it's been like seven years. And um, then I got the right mental health diagnosis. I was misdiagnosed as a major depressive disorder until last year. And yeah. that is significantly helped too, because I'm just like, um, when I would get like hypomanic, because uh, I'm bipolar too, I would just like, want to party and I would want to drink and I'd have all this energy and all these things. And then, then now looking back, I realized I'm like, Oh, that's why I was like, that. <laughs> but also I can, I can relate to the trauma aspect because I've definitely had my own trauma. Um, so I'd love for you to share with us what, what is attachment trauma? Like, where does that stem from? Yes. It's a beautiful question. So basically we all go through some form of trauma in life. It's basically impossible to avoid trauma. And I like, I like to get people to think of trauma as basically something that we can't properly emotionally process at the time. So basically what we do is we just store it and we build like a narrative around it and then we reproject it back out onto the outside world. So for example, um, maybe somebody, let's say Bob gets in a car accident and, and he goes, oh my gosh, I'm unsafe, right? Our, our mind really seeks to figure out how to contextualize and make sense of what we go through. So it goes, I am unsafe. We form a narrative. We form a fear and some subconscious negative associations to maybe being in a car. And we reproject that back on, onto the outside world. So it, it stays with us. And that's how, when we keep rerunning that narrative, it stays with us all this time later. But in childhood, what happens is when we all go through the system of classical conditioning, so when we go through through socialization, we're punished for doing things wrong, rewarded for doing things right. Well, as a child who's, you know, one of our only three biological fears is the fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. That's triggering for for that biological fear because we don't understand when that system starts at a year and a half to two years old, 
that our parents aren't going to abandon us. And in fact, they're doing this for our own good. It triggers like, whoa, I'm being punished. Love is being withheld. What's going on? Am I going to survive? And so to a certain degree, this is part of why we get approval and survival so closely intertwined at a subconscious level and why we're such an approval seeking species throughout our adult lives. And so we grow up. We go through this and, and basically attachment trauma are these different experiences that have imprinted us at a subconscious level that at a really profound level actually build our identity and our story about ourselves and the world. And for some people who have a securely attached style, you know, this is our good attachment style that we want, you know, they have a lot more positive experiences in, in childhood than negative. And so overall, they get really good subconscious rules for how to relate to other people. But mm -hmm. for our three insecurely attached styles, which make up the majority of individuals, um, what ends up happening is we have some painful rules for how to relate. We build painful narratives about ourselves. I can't, I'm not good enough. I'm unloved. I'm not cared for. I'm unworthy, whatever it might be. And then, oh, people can't be trusted. People are unsafe. Vulnerability is unsafe. You know, painful stories about the outside world. World. So mm -hmm. attachment trauma is basically the subconscious set of rules we get for how to relate to both ourselves and others because of our early childhood experiences. And these are not concrete things. They're not there for the rest of our lives. They can be if we never work on them, but they're basically just, a, it's on the diagnosis, it's a subconscious set of rules. And I often compare like you know, if people have different attachment styles, it's like playing a board game and you have a different rule book for the board game. Like it's going to be really difficult. Yes. <laughs> and so when we understand what that rule book is made up of and some of the patterns in there, the core wounds, the limiting beliefs, the fears and relationships, the emotional patterns, the needs and subconscious expectations we bring into the way we relate to other people, it really empowers us to open the door to have like way better understanding of ourselves and others. And we remove a lot of wasted time and energy spent on personalizing things, miscommunicating, having these obstacles come up because we don't understand one another's rule book. And so it's a really important dynamic to understand in our lives. Absolutely. And I'm like, yes, because my husband is a, has a secure attachment style and I believe fearful and avoidant or fearful avoidant attached or attachment style is mine. And so we've been married 10 years and, and we're finally getting on the same level about this because I've been working on myself. But yeah, for those first, like, whatever, eight, seven, eight years, it was a mess because like how he was brought up and how he interacts with the world is very different than how I was grown up and, and, and how I interact with the world. I would love for you to share with us because we, we mentioned the attachment styles, two of them, uh, what they are, um, and maybe a little bit about how they form. Yeah, definitely. So, so um, our first attachment style is the securely attached style. And securely attached individuals basically grow up in a household where their feelings and needs are met consistently enough. So they build way more positive emotional associations to their own feelings and needs and expressing those to their caregivers than negative. So for example, if a child cries, the caregiver comes, they're nurturing, they come towards the child, they check in. If the child has a need that they express, you know, the caregiver at least holds space for it. Even if they don't agree, they negotiate it, they communicate about it, these sorts of things. And when a child gets those basic things met and when their boundaries are respected and understood, they basically grow up in a household where they feel naturally worthy of love just for being who they are. Mm 
because they get their feelings, they get their needs met as a human being. They're not having to earn their worth or do something to get their caregivers nurturing or compassion. It's just consistently there. So this individual grows up in their adult lives to feel worthy of love, to feel lovable, to feel like expressing feelings, AKA being vulnerable is safe and is something good. They naturally trust other people because a lot of their subconscious experiences were positive about trust and they feel like their needs are worthy of being heard and expressed. So they feel safe communicating themselves, setting boundaries, talking about all these different things. And so of course, these individuals are the most likely to have successful long-term relationships because they have all the great patterns that we want in order to feel safe and have healthy interactions. And then we have our three insecurely attached individuals who don't get the same health necessarily in childhood. And it can be for a variety of different reasons. So at one end of the continuum in a way, we have our dismissive avoidant attachment style. And these individuals tend to have some form of emotional neglect in childhood. And it can be like outright physical neglect as well, where like food's not on the table, poor hygiene, they're not being cared for at all. But the vast majority of the time, it's actually like fly under the radar emotional neglect, where parents will be good at having the food on the table, you know, things out and organized, but they won't be there to emotionally nurture the child. So this can be like really common things we see, like don't be a crybaby, kids should be seen and not heard, you know, and there's a rejection of the child's emotional side. And as a child, that's part of who we are. And, and our emotions are our internal feedback mechanisms. They're like an intrinsic part of ourselves. And so to have this, this part of you constantly rejected as a child, that child's mind can't go, oh, my parents are emotionally unavailable or they're being unhealthy. Our prefrontal cortex isn't developed enough to really even understand all of that. And so all the child's mind can do, which is what we do as children, is personalize. So a child often makes this core belief out of that situation and go, they go, well, an inherent part of me is being rejected. So there must be something wrong with me. I must be defective. And dismissive avoidance usually have this massive shame wound in their, in their adult lives because they actually believe like I am defective at my core. And it's mm -hmm. this buried subconscious belief they have about themselves. And so they have this component and then they also feel unsafe connecting. They feel unsafe being vulnerable. They don't want to you know, open themselves up and be seen and be heard because they go, no, no, no that's not a good situation. That, that's never happened to me. That feels really scary and outside of my subconscious comfort zone. So these individuals in their adult lives, of course, become the people afraid of commitment. They become the people who like don't want to open up, don't want to get too close. You know, the people who people go like they, they never want to settle down, you know, and, and we judge things like that. And, and it's sad because right underneath that, it's actually a response to trauma that somebody went through that was usually quite painful. And there's, you know, these words of Dr. Gaber Mate, he says, trauma are the things that happened that shouldn't have happened. So like physical mm -hmm. verbal abuse, but also the things that didn't happen that should have happened, like emotional nurturing, right? So an emotional neglect in and of itself is a trauma. So that's one end of the continuum. And at the other end of the continuum, we have anxious, preoccupied individuals. And these are the individuals who have some kind of perceived abandonment that's happening throughout their childhood. And this can be that one parent's really warm and one parent's really cold and that juxtaposition feels like some kind of abandonment from one parent. It can also be that 
Um, we have both parents who are really warm and loving, for example, but they work a lot. So the child's often left with grandma or at after school programs or something like that, where the child like really feels good about connection, but they feel like it keeps getting withheld. And because we have that biological fear we mentioned of abandonment, that's constantly being pushed on. And so this child grows up in their adult lives to totally fear abandonment, always want to cling and they hunger for relationships. They hunger for, you know, not being unsafe through some kind of abandonment. And a lot of their core wounds are things like, I will be alone. I will be abandoned. I will be excluded, disconnected. I don't belong. I'm rejected. I'm not good enough. These sorts of things are really painful for this individual. And they spend a lot of their time basically doing backflips in their lives to try to gain favor with others, to try to gain connection, um, approval, acknowledgement, these kinds of things, because they're desperate to not feel that abandonment wound again. And then our very last one is our fearful avoidant. And the fearful avoidant experiences both sides of the attachment spectrum. The fearful avoidant has the anxious sides. They carry those core wounds, fear of abandonment, fear of exclusion, being disconnected, these sorts of things. But they also have the dismissive avoidance side. So they have that part of like, oh, don't get too close. Vulnerability is unsafe. I shouldn't express my needs. They can sometimes fear being trapped, helpless, or powerless in their lives or in their relationships. Um, and they can carry some of that shame wounding as well. And so the interesting thing about the fearful avoidant is that they often oscillate back and forth and it creates this kind of ambivalence. It's like, come here, come here. And then somebody gets close. It's like, nope, get back, stay away. And it's like the, the teeter totter is always moving back and forth. Now, beyond that, the fearful avoidant, you know, is, is really truly marked by um, trust wounds, like having a huge trust, what I call our internal baseline of trust is fragmented. And so part of this comes from any number of circumstances, but it can be things like having a parent who's an alcoholic or an addict, right? And an example of this would be you come home, let's pretend it's mom and mom is drinking. And it's like you, there's no consistency in the way you can attach to her. Mom could be warm when she's drinking. Mom could she be angry when she's drinking. Mom could be sober that day. She could be drinking that day. There's no structure. And if we look at the dismissive avoidant, for example, they get consistent emotional neglect. So they can at least make an adaptation to that and go, okay, well, then I'm going to just learn to soothe myself. The anxious preoccupied, they get consistent nurturing when people are present. So they go, oh, I can soothe through others. The fearful avoidant, there's no order to it. There's no like, oh, mom only drinks on Tuesdays or Fridays. It's like, it's so unpredictable. And so that really fragments that internal trust baseline in terms of how we attach. And from that, it can also be, you know, it could be a parent's going through that. It could be violence in the home. It could be some kind of abuse that takes place. But basically, the fearful one goes through the most trauma. That's the things that happen that shouldn't have happened type of trauma. Um, and so, and it can even be things like PAS, like having one parent, you know, parental alienation. It can be one parent pitting the, the child against the other parent or vice versa. So in some form, this child grows up and goes, I can't trust and I will be betrayed. And that's actually their biggest wound as a general rule. And so part of like healing that becomes what we see in their adult life, right? It's like, come close, you're too close, get back. <laughs> and, and people wouldn't are usually very hypervigilant, very good at understanding other people's needs but often feel really afraid to express their own. And so they can feel like really, you know, frustrated sometimes thinking like, I meet everybody's needs, but then who's meeting mine? But what they don't realize is not everybody is as attuned often as the fearful avoidance is as tapped in. 
And that was often a coping mechanism the fearful avoidant went through in childhood. Like I have to become hypervigilant to know if mom's going to be drinking or not drinking. And I have to pick up on human behavior like this so that I can see what's happening in my environment and adapt. And so it makes them so good at reading people and then so good at meeting people's needs when you know them, but then you can feel so frustrated when somebody's not showing up in the same way, but it could be because a, we're not communicating our needs and B also because um, not everybody has the same degree of hypervigilance that the fearful avoidance had to develop. So I was fearful avoidant as well, by the way. So, <laughs> so I know you mentioned that. Yeah. But I oh was no, involved. I was right about which one I am. <laughs> you were talking and I was like, uh-huh, yeah, that's me. Uh-huh. I grew up in a household where you didn't know. Um, I would say more with my mom than my dad. My mom um, definitely has an undiagnosed mental illness and I was say I was her punching bag, but I was the person I think she blames for because she had me at a really young age. Um, I shouldn't say I think. I know she blames me because she's told me. Um, so it would be like one time it's like, oh, mom's great. We're, we're getting along. We're doing fun things like maybe making Christmas cookies. And then the next minute is like, but now mom is, is like insulting me and mom is saying like mean things to me and mom is being cold to me. And it was like never... And my dad was consistent when I was little, but then my parents divorced and we're pretty sure he's undiagnosed bipolar. Um, and so when they divorced, it went from like this dad that was like really warm and loving and caring to this dad is like never there. And then like, I, I did something wrong and he rejected me. And so he had all these things where there was no, there was a lot of like uh, um, emotional and mental abuse and there was no consistency so when you're like it was like fragmented and there was no consistent I'm like yes that's me <laughs> yes a hundred percent and that's what we fear right it's like you grow up and then you have this exposure to like okay mom's nice sometimes and she's mean other times and there's no way of navigating that and so you can see how like for a child that that breaks down that internal trust baseline like can I ever trust mom probably not I don't have any like on Mondays I can trust her I have no consistency so it's like the only way you can learn to adapt is be like super super guard up all the time trying to read between the lines trying to sort of look at the worst case scenarios and then of course that becomes our subconscious rule book for how to relate and then we bring that into all relationships and all people and don't get me wrong there's some superpowers that come out of this right there's some like you're amazing at reading people totally see human behavior can completely empathize with other human human beings at a really deep profound level a lot of compassion and a lot of care, um, you know, a lot of these really powerful things. But at the same time, that, that's where we do our healing and our work is like clean up that internal trust baseline, learn how to trust. Um, and it's beautiful that you're in this long-term relationship because being with a secure person can really help you over time to adapt, especially after you overcome like the power struggle phase of a relationship. Yeah. He's told me, he's like, I never once thought about divorcing you in 10 years, which is surprising to me because I was because of my trauma and because of my mental illness, like in the beginning of our marriage, I was not healthy, um, but he stuck by me. And I was like, I thought about divorcing you all the time because what, what, what happens with me is I'm like so vulnerable. And like, I get, um, you know, I get like a friendship or a relationship with somebody and I'm just like, here's all of me. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I just want to grab that all up because now I feel shame about exposing myself. And like, what does that mean? Like, 
oh my gosh, now they're going to think I'm a horrible human being. And now they're not going to think I'm a good person. And uh, like all these things, and I just want to gather it all back up again. Like I was too vulnerable. Like this is not going to be good. And, and I've had to learn with my husband is like, I can be vulnerable. Yeah. And he's seen the worst sides of me and he's still here. So it's okay for me to let that all out because he's not going to be like, oh no, I'm going to divorce you now after 10 years. <laughs> And it's so beautiful and healing to go through that. And that's what we like all needed in, in childhood, right? And so some people can do that work in like reparenting themselves if they don't have that long-term relationship and that secure attachment figure in our adult lives. And some people can actually do the reprogramming work so that they can heal, but, but other people can do that work healing through a relationship as well. And so what's happening too is like, this is one of the contexts of the fearful avoidance is they go from activating to deactivating. So, and I've been there, like I was very fearful avoidant. So I fully understand and it's like, what happens is you open, open, open. You like love, 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 give, 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 share yourself completely. And then somebody does something that bothers you and, and we can give painful meaning to it. We feel a little rejected. We feel dismissed, whatever it might be. And then what happens is it hurts so much because of all that vulnerability and because of what a big deal all that vulnerability is after everything we've been through and then it hurts so much. And then all we want to do is like, Oh, that person, it's actually our subconscious programs that are so the source of the pain, but our subconscious associates, it's an association making machine. So it goes, this person is causing my pain. I need to get as far away from possible as far away as possible from this person. Like I need to run, I need to hide, I need to get away. And we go through deactivating strategies, which are like basically subconscious excuses to create distance between ourselves and others. And often for fearful avoidance, it takes place in the form of like really not so nice thoughts about other people. Like they're hurting me. They're always going to hurt me. I could never trust them again. You right. know, and we think in those sort of extremes and those all or nothing ways. Um, but, but what we're being called to do is to really clean up the way we think, the way we perceive what the meaning is that we give to situations to really question it, to really work through it and to be able to separate out what our childhood experiences were from like what life we're living right now and who we're with currently and to be able to peel those layers back is a really beautiful thing it makes so much sense because my first therapist i'm on therapist number three the first one we stopped uh working together because she thought that my abusive relationship with my ex was the thing i had to work through and we didn't get dig for far enough for her to realize there's a whole bunch underneath there. Uh, therapist two, I stopped seeing her because I moved to Connecticut from Virginia. Um, and therapist three, now we're, because of COVID, we're doing virtual, which really sucks. We were doing EMDR before virtual, um, but it doesn't work as well over Zoom yeah. at, or not Zoom, but whatever platform she used as it does in person. So I was like, hopefully when we get that vaccine next year. <laughs> Um, but it makes so so much sense because therapist one said, I have a Megan box. She's like, people fit into your Megan box. And when they don't anymore, you are like, no, you don't fit my Megan box anymore. So goodbye. She was like, instead, you don't see that it could be like a target where like people can fit these different rings in your life. Like, you know, you have your close friends and family and then, you know, acquaintances and coworkers and all these things. She's like, you just expect everybody to fit into this box and they won't. <laughs> and it's a subconscious strategy to stay safe. 
it's like, I need people to fit into a box and I need to fully understand them and know exactly like where they belong in my life so that I can determine what their behavior is going to be. Right. Like if we got so much unpredictability, that's one of the forms we use or the strategies we use to try to get predictability. And then what happens is when somebody breaks out of your box or they, they don't meet an expectation or an assumption or whatever we're carrying to get that safety around them. Um, it often feels like a betrayal and then it triggers our biggest wound. And then we go, Oh, like now I just have to shut down and like walk away completely and derive that space so I can stay safe again. And really it's all related to attachment trauma. Yeah. I don't want to make this about me, which I've made about me too much. And people are probably listening. Like what, what, what can we do? So what can we do? Like, what can we not just fearful and avoid, avoidant um, people, but like, what can people do if they're like, I don't think I'm the secure attachment style. Like, I don't think I, well, I know I'm not, but like they're, they're listening and they're thinking, I don't think I am. How can I navigate this? Because I mean, if we don't work on it, which I've been working on it, um, it can ruin relationships, right? Like that attachment style, if it wasn't for my husband being so securely attached, I, that, that would have ruined our relationship because I would have just been like, bye-bye, go, go away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's common too for fearful avoidance to like threaten to leave the relationship, that kind of stuff too. Okay. So, so here's what we can do. So the, the big rules that we have, okay. There's like, there's key components around it. So there's the core wounds that we have and core wounds play a massive role in our lives. It's like these stories or narratives we carry about ourselves and about other people in relationships. And the reason these play such a big role is you can think of the subconscious mind as sort of being like a minefield and people have different minds in their minefield. Securely attached people will have some minds. They all go through some form of trauma to a certain degree, but their minds aren't going to be as strong. They're going to be like smaller minds and they're going to be further spread apart. Okay. And, and so people with more trauma are going to have a lot more minds in their minefield and those bombs are going to go off bigger. And what's actually happening, the reason for this is that the subconscious mind stores all memories and it consolidates memories over time and sometimes like shifts them around a little bit, but, but, um, all memory is colored with emotion. So for example, if Bob has, let's say Bob's anxious, preoccupied, and he has, you know, nine out of 10 wounding, like so much emotion consistently around feeling this perceived abandonment, then when that mind is hit, that's going to go off bigger than maybe, you know, John who's securely attached, who like felt, you know, a little bit abandoned at one point in time. And he's got a little tiny mind. that's a one out of 10. Right. right. So, so we have like more emotion attached to our wounds and, and the subconscious is like this big file folder. And what happens is, is as soon as we have a, a, an experience in our adult lives now that reminds us of that old mind, that old painful imprint that we have, the subconscious goes, Oh, here's all the files for how to deal with this. And what it's actually doing is like flooding all the emotion to the surface. So now we're not experiencing just the abandonment right now that, that because somebody didn't call us back, it's actually somebody didn't call us back, which should be like a 0.5 out of 10 maybe. But when we have, you know, Bob's nine out of 10 of previous abandonment wound, he experienced that as a 9.5 out of 10. And so what we have to do is we have to start going in and reprogramming those wounds, AKA removing the minds from our minefield. And there are two big things. These are the only reasons we can have negative emotional feelings. We have pain, which are unmet needs. And that pain is a good thing. That pain has been designed to help us evolve and survive as a species. Like, oh, we have hunger pains, go get food. We feel thirsty, go drink water. We feel cold, go find shelter, right? So like 
pain emotionally. Oh, we feel that we have an unmet need for, for attachment or connection. That's actually good. That's how we go connect with people. It's there to push us to do something. Suffering is the story we tell about the pain. So suffering is, I have an unmet need for connection. It's because I'm not good enough. It's because I'm not interesting enough. It's because I'm unlovable. It's because I'm not worthy of connection. It's because it's impossible to have a relationship nowadays. It's the story we tell. And that's the only reason we suffer. We have pain or suffering. We have unmet needs or literally stories that we have, core belief imprints that we have. And so what we can do to get secure is remove the core beliefs we have and start meeting the unmet needs we have from our lives. And I always ask people, like, if we think about this for a moment, if you had a trauma, let's say, when you were eight years old, and let's say now you're 45 years old, or let's say for you, for example, you're maybe like 30. And 34. so, so <laughs> awesome. Close, so, close. So, so let's say, right, you're looking and you're going, I had a trauma when I was eight. How is it possible that the trauma from eight years old is still affecting you now? How is it? That was however many years ago, a long time ago. Right. Why is it still present in your reality today? Well, what has to happen from a, a neuroplasticity perspective is we had to be firing and wiring that same trauma in the relationship to ourselves on autopilot the entire time in order for it to still be affecting us now. So if, if Bob had um, a really critical parent and he made that mean I'm not good enough, he, for him to still hurt about that thing when he was eight years old, he has to feel like he has to have basically been in a state of re-traumatization. He had to be telling himself the story over and over and over and over again to keep that neural circuitry alive on autopilot that he's not good enough. And so when we change these things that wounded us then in the relationship to ourselves, or if we look at, for example, somebody else, the unmet need, let's say somebody's emotionally neglected in childhood, the dismissive avoidant, these individuals grow up and they become the biggest emotional neglectors of themselves, of their own feelings and emotions. They avoid themselves and binge watch television, play video games, whatever it is, everything to escape themselves. And so we stay in a state of re-traumatization in the two main facets, even though there's like five total that are really profound, the two main facets are, what are my core beliefs? And what are my unmet needs? And we have to change that pattern by meeting the needs that we didn't get met. And so for dismissive avoidance, it's a lot of like security, safety. It's a lot of harmony in relationships. It's a lot of emotional nurturing, support, feeling their feelings. They have to clean that up. They didn't get that. They have to reparent that for themselves. Okay. And, and it's also changing these core beliefs that we carry. Like vulnerability is not safe. You know, I'm trapped, helpless, and powerless. If I connect to people, we have to reprogram those core wounds. So we want to find those core wounds. I mentioned a lot of them earlier, like the I anxious, preoccupied, I'm alone, abandoned, excluded, disliked, rejected, don't belong, not good enough. Those things I was mentioning, those are the core wounds and we can plug them in, which I'll share in a, in a minute. Um, some reprogramming exercises we can do to actually remove those minds from our minefield. And also, again, we have to fill those voids that are, are in our minefield as well, the holes of unmet needs. So if we felt we didn't get the proper support, we didn't feel seen and heard, great. Time to start seeing, hearing, and supporting yourself and advocating for those needs in your relationships to others. And if we can change our thinking, change our stories about ourselves, aka core wounds, and we can meet our own needs, those are two huge first steps to really reprogramming our attachment style at the subconscious level. Woo! That's <laughs> a lot of info. I'm like a bit of a fire hose. 
Um, <laughs> and this is why people are going to need to pick up your book. Um, <laughs> yeah, for me, um, my core belief, uh, we, with my therapist, we, we uncovered my key core belief is I'm not good enough. It always comes back to, I'm not good enough. It's, you know, whatever it is, it's, I'm not good enough. And um, that definitely causes like, and I think with the re-traumatization is part of that might be because the, what happened is actually keeps going. Like, you know, my relationship with my mom up into like a year ago, I stopped talking to her a year ago. Cause I'm like, I just can't, I can't keep doing this. Like it would like, you know, it would, things would be okay for a while and be great. And then it would become a disaster zone. And it's like, what did I do to set her off? I don't know what I did to set her off. And then, you know, it keeps, and, and it's hard to, to heal and undo those things when you have the, the person in your life that keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Yes. Can I say something so important? Yes, absolutely. So here's what we can look at, right? And, and I'll, I'll share a reprogramming tool for the audience so that you can start with around this like core story, but this is such a good example. What I often say to people is it's an absolute injustice that mom's trauma is what makes you not good enough. It's like saying, mm -hmm. oh, Bob didn't call me back and it means I'm unlovable. How dare we take Bob's actions and Bob's programming as a totally different human being and let that define whether we are lovable or not. Right. And we make this link and we tell that story and, and that's the healing is breaking that link. Like mom is going to do what she's going to do because she's got her own trauma. She's got her own pain. Mom's actions don't define who I am as a human being. She's a separate person, a separate entity. And so when we want to do reprogramming work, first we have to question that belief in the first place. Like because mom acts the way she does, does that mean I'm not good enough? And that doesn't mean don't have boundaries with mom. Like sure. for, for a lot of people, the best thing you can possibly do is actually take that space. But then it means let's not carry that story as an injustice after that was planted when we never asked for that in the first place. And so what we can do when we're working to reprogram, one of the first, there's literally like so many different reprogramming tools, but this is one of my favorite. It's called auto-suggestion. It's pretty simple. We get into a suggestible state, number one. So a state where we're producing mostly alpha and theta brainwaves. It makes our subconscious mind really open to suggestion, to hypnosis to a certain degree. This is usually the first hour when we're awake or the last hour before we're in bed, before we go to sleep, I mean. Um, it can also be like after a meditation, after a nap, you know, that like relaxed feeling we get into. Mm -hmm. So we're really suggestible. Number two, we isolate that painful story. So that core belief, I'm not good enough. And number three, we find 10 to 15 pieces of evidence on a daily basis for the opposite. Now, the reason we have evidence is the subconscious mind does not speak English, right? The subconscious mind, it doesn't speak like language. It speaks through emotion and imagery. So a lot of people will do things like use affirmations. And that can be very limiting because we're going... I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. But it's like your subconscious doesn't pick up on that. And your subconscious is where the wound is in the first place. So we have to use our conscious mind to speak the language of our subconscious and evidence is basically a memory. So let's say, for example, we look for evidence for why we're good enough. I'm good enough because I've overcome this thing. I went to school for this thing. I showed up in this way. I, you know, and we look for these pieces every time we pick a piece of evidence, it's actually a memory. And all memory is an image and it's all color, all memory is colored with emotion. So when we go, Oh, because I went to school for psychology, for example, for you right. and like, look at all I've persevered and gone through and showed up for and learned. And you see those images of you reading the book and of you going into the classroom and of you showing up when you're tired and you, and, and it elicits a feeling 
and it's an image. So now we use our conscious mind and we're actually speaking to our subconscious mind in that suggestible state when we're producing those alpha and theta brainwaves. If we do that 10 to 15 places a day for 21 days, we create an entirely new neural pathway, neural paradigm really. And, and neural pathways atrophy over time. Like it's like muscles. If I stop working my bicep muscle out, like my bicep will go, whoop, like it'll go right. away over time. Right. And, and neural pathways work in the same way. So what we want to do is we want to keep firing and wiring this evidence for why we are good enough. And we want to keep showing up for that story and nurturing that. And what we'll see is everything else will follow. And I often tell people like, you don't have to have the best pieces of evidence. Like I remember doing my big thing was like, I'm worthy. And I felt like very unworthy when I started doing the, I am worthy reprogramming. I was like in a horrible place in my life. Like I had blown up my life. Like it was not a good time. I was at my like rock, rock bottom. And I didn't really have anything at the time to say like, oh, I'm worthy. And so what I would do is I'd be like, I'm worthy because I brushed my teeth this morning. I got out of bed on my first alarm. I, and I would pick these small things because it doesn't matter how good your evidence is. It matters that you're reprogramming this thing that's ruining your life. This story, this painful narrative about yourself that you then act like I'm, if I feel like I'm unworthy, I'm not going to take job opportunities. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to set boundaries. I'm not going to receive love. So I have to get rid of that thing first, and then we can look for everything else to follow. And so we just have to 10 or 15 pieces of evidence, 21 days, doesn't matter how big or small, pick things. You'll find that you start building momentum. When you've got that wound removed, then you show up as a better version of yourself in the world. And then you actually do start finding bigger pieces of evidence to come in and show why you're worthy because we act in the world, what we believe ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really important first step. And then the other part is like, whatever your unmet needs are, meet those needs in the relationship to yourself on a daily basis, start showing up for your own needs, advocate for them. Those two things together are really, you know, when we rinse and repeat things repetitively, repetition reprograms. So then we bring those things out into the world and, and that really helps to change our attachment style. I know there are so many la more layers to this and we are out of time. I, I want to encourage people to grab your book, follow your YouTube um, channel, like get in with your, you know, program, all the things, because like this, what we just talked about is just surface, like surface level. There is so much more to it. Uh, so what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Um, one thing I would like to share that I think is one of the most important things we'll do, and it's very simple, is learn to be gentle in the relationship to ourselves. We all go through the punishment reward system, and then we grow up in our whole life, and we start instilling the punishment reward system in the relationship to ourselves. Oh, I'm bad because I did this. Oh, I'm an, an idiot for doing this. And we just re-traumatize over and over and over again. And when we can start inquiring about our mistake instead of judging them when we can start having compassion to ourselves and treating ourselves like human beings and then be accountable for things like oh why did i do that what led to that oh because i was in pain i was afraid okay what will i want to do next time when we can change the way we treat ourselves we uproot a whole bunch of trauma we're keeping alive at the subconscious level it's a really important part of our healing I love that so much. I've loved this conversation. I know I turned it on myself multiple times and I actually love like, that though. When I saw it Here. like pop up, I was like, oh, like in the um, application, I'm like, oh, well, I want to learn about that. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun chatting with you and really nice to be here. 
Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.